0: You're listening to Murder Not Murdering with Aaron
1: and Autumn, a true
0: crime podcast about murder and murdering, but we
1: are not murderers.
0: Welcome back, everybody, to Murder, Not Murdering. It's been a minute.
1: Yes, and we had a really good little summer break there where we were able to go on vacations and visit with family. It was a much-needed rest.
0: I agree completely. We went and, uh, we went to Victoria, BC for a little while, um, which was wonderful, and the weather was great, and... We just had a really, really nice time getting some family time in before school started. And we went to Vegas. And if you looked on our Instagram, Autumn (laughs) went to Binion's, which was in our last case.
1: Yes, which was kind of surreal being there after I had just done the recording because there was everything – Related to Binions, and it was just old Vegas. It was just really surreal. I was well, and you excited.
0: had you had pictures of him in Binions, mm-hmm. so it was just cool. It was cool to see your pictures from that.
1: Yeah, it was really fun. I really enjoyed actually being in there.
0: I am so excited to be back, though. Like, I'm glad that we had our hiatus for a little bit, but I am very excited to be back.
1: Me too. I cannot wait to hear what you have to say.
0: Good because it's as per usual a little long winded, but it's a really good story. (laughs) I just can't help myself.
1: I know you can't.
0: (laughs) I like the details, and I like to, you know, add a little flair in there every once in a while.
1: That's okay. I'm I'm sure all of our listeners enjoy it, or they
0: wouldn't be listening. That's right. All right, so are you ready if we jump right in in and less chit chat? So ready. Good. Here it goes. Sheriff's Homicide File zero seven nine two zero zero nine zero nine. Victim Salvatore Minio White Male thirty seven. Address eight five six seven Holloway Drive West Hollywood nine hundred forty two PM Thursday, february twelfth, nineteen seventy six. TV, radio, and newspapers report the headline Actor Sal Minio Dead, Two Time Oscar Nominee Slain Outside Apartment. To understand this case and how long it took to find the killer because of mishandlings of information and bigotry due to Sal's sexuality, we have to understand the person who is Sal Minio. Salvatore Minio Jr. was born. January 10, 1939, in the Bronx, New York City. He was the son of coffin makers Josephine and Salvatore Minio, Sr. He was of Sicilian descent. Sal was one of the few Italian-Americans of his era to keep his last name, saying he was proud of his heritage and identity. Sal got into a bit of trouble early on in life. He joined a street gang at age 10 years old. He used his father's caskets to hide the gang's stolen goods. That's savage. Right? (laughs) Oh, my God. But they were caught, and they were charged with theft. The judge threatened to send Sal to a correctional facility unless he could find a more productive outlet. His mother enrolled him in dancing and acting at an early age. He had his first stage appearance at age 12 in a Tennessee Williams play, The Rose Tattoo. Then he also played the young prince opposite Ewell Brenner in the stage musical The King and I. Brenner took the opportunity to help Sal better himself as an actor then and also throughout the years. He really took him under his wing, which is pretty amazing because he's a prolific actor. 100%. Sal was young and carried his makeup bag with him on the subway just when he was on his way to get to the theater. It was at that time that he encountered a group of people who would chase him and beat him regularly. If he wasn't, if he wasn't getting it from people on the subway, he would be getting it from people on the streets. He was a small build gentleman and he also was, you know, very sensitive. And so they would call him names and tease him about his sexuality and chase him and, and essentially beat him on the regular.
1: That is awful.
0: It is, but he did get his big break starring in what I would call one of his most famous roles and one of my personal favorite movies of all time, A Rebel Without a Cause, co-starring, <laughs> co-starring James Dean and Natalie Wood. Sal portrayed Plato, a character not ne- necessarily unlike himself. Plato is obviously enamored by James Dean's character, Jim, and Sal felt the same about James. He would later say... If I'd understood back then that a guy could be in love with another one, it would have happened, but I didn't come to that realization for a few more years, and then it was too late for Jimmy and me. Sal would go on to become the fifth youngest person at age 17 to be nominated for an Academy Award at that time for his role as Best Supporting Actor in Rebel. He would go on to co-star in Giant, also with James Dean, who he idolized. Sadly, as we all know, James Dean died tragically in a car accident at age 24. This devastated Sal. He began trying to reach out beyond the grave with seances and used a Ouija board trying to contact James Dean. He began driving sports cars and caught many times speeding way too fast. His obsession with James never faltered. He had sort of become typecast at that point as always playing a troubled teen role, but he wanted to break out of that. Next, he would star in the Disney adventure Tonka, where he would play an American indigenous person given his olive skin tone and Hollywood's notorious whitewashing. By the 1950s, Sal was a major celebrity. He was sometimes referred to as the Switchblade Kid, a nickname he earned from his role as a criminal in the movie Crime in the Streets. Everyone loved him, including Mickey Cohen, the mob boss, who (laughs) said that he wanted Sal to play him in a movie if one was ever made. In 1957, Sal began a music career by recording a handful of songs and an album. Two of his singles reached the top 40 in the United States Billboard Hot 100. But his music career ended up fizzling out. Oh, bummer. Yeah. In 1959, he starred as drummer Gene Krupa in the movie The Gene Krupa Story. Like I said, he tried to overcome being typecast. In addition to his role in Tonka and a Mexican boy in Giant, in 1960, he played a Jewish Holocaust survivor in Exodus. He was nominated for an Academy Award Award for that role and he won a Golden Globe for his performance. In 1961, Sal had been promoting that role in Exodus and he was parking in a garage. He pulled his car in, then a truck rolled up behind him. He noticed six men who were wearing red armbands with a very prominent swastika in the middle. They began pounding on the back of his car. He fired up the engine and threw it in reverse. They kept banging on the car, a few moved out of the way to avoid being run over, but then they started banging on the windows and trying to pull the door handles, screaming at him. Luckily, Sal was able to throw it in gear and speed away. I wish I could tell you that this was the end of discrimination for Sal Minio, but unfortunately this narrative stays throughout the story. By the early 1960s, Sal was becoming too old to play that type of role that had made him famous, and rumors of his homosexuality led to his being considered inappropriate for leading roles. He auditioned for Lawrence of Arabia, but was not hired. Sal was perplexed by this sudden loss of popularity, saying later in life, one minute, it seemed I had more movie offers than I could handle, and the next, no one wanted me. Sal modeled for Harold Stevenson's painting, The New Adam, in 1963. Now in the Guggenheim Museum's permanent collection, the painting is considered one of the great American nudes, and it is stunning. It's 44 feet long, and I definitely recommend checking it out. Sal's role as a stalker in Who Killed Teddy Bear did not seem to help his career. Oh, although yeah. his although Sorry. his I know. Although his performance was praised by critics, he found himself typecast again, now as a deranged criminal. Then he stepped away from TV and film. In nineteen sixty nine, Sal returned to the stage for his directorial debut in a Los Angeles production of the gay themed play Fortune and Men's Eyes, th- featuring then unknown actor Don Johnson. The production received positive reviews, although it did have a expanded rapes, prison rape scene that was criticized as excessive and gratuitous. One critic hated it, and they came down on Sal pretty hard, basically saying that you would have to be not okay in the head to go see that play, and that Sal's acting was mediocre. The local LGBTQIA community showed up. Remember, this was right after Stonewall, and they fought back by going to see the play and making it a huge success. Sal's last role in a movie was a small part in the film Escape from Planet of the Apes in 1971. He played the chimpanzee, Dr. Milo. He was considered for the role of Michael Corleone in The Godfather, but one of the other actors refused to work with him because he was out and open about his bisexuality and was a regular at gay bars. And then, obviously, the role went to Al Pacino. He played a few roles in television shows, and by 1976, his career began to turn around. While playing the role of a bisexual burglar in a series of stage performances of the comedy P.S. Your Cat is Dead in San Francisco, Sal received substantial publicity from many positive reviews and he moved to Los Angeles along with the play. On the night of February 12th, 1976, Sal returned home from a rehearsal for the play, P.S. Your Cat is Dead. He pulled in the carport. Just after 9 p.m., neighbors heard someone screaming out, Oh no! Oh my god, no! Then... As reported by several of them, they saw a man with long hair running away and an engine start and peel out of there. They heard him yell, "'Oh, God, someone please help!' Then one of the neighbors, Roy Evans, ran to assist the person. When he got to the carport, he found a man on his side in fetal position. The victim laid still. He's halfway down the alley. Another good Samaritan attended to him. The victim's head points south, His feet point northwest. He's wearing blue jeans and a blue shirt with red and white flowers. The police and medics have been called. It was dark out, and he was also wearing a dark blue jacket and black tennis shoes. He's been stabbed. The stab wound is in his upper left chest. It's a bad wound. The blood flow extends 10 feet plus. The wound goes deep. The blood runs east. Down the alley. The ambulance arrives and they attempt to resuscitate him to no avail. He is pronounced dead at nine fifty five PM It was obviously a sudden attack. The victim's seventy three duster is parked in the space. Scattered items support this sunglasses, a red address book, a manila envelope, car keys, a paper bag, and inside a cellophane wrapped piece of cake. Nothing appeared to be stolen. Because the neighbors had ran down to help, they unfortunately trampled the crime scene and even tracked blood around on their shoes. The victim was identified as the actor Sal Minio. The police were quite bigoted, especially at that time. And the police reports are fucking awful to read. They literally said in the notes, this half-assed movie star, he played a tortured punk in that florid locks rebel without a cause meaning he was flamboyant and they did not agree with his lifestyle. They were hellbent on proving that this murder was due to his unholy way of life.
1: Oh, come on.
0: The police began going through his red book of names, which included many of his LGBTQIA friends, lovers, and gay bars he frequented. The police interviewed many of his friends. They began asking about his drug use, trying to show that he was living in depravity. His friends said that he casually used coke and weed on occasion. Some said he never did drugs. There were needle marks on his buttocks, and his partner at the time explained that they were hormone shots to improve his virality in bed. The police tried to prove that he paid for sex often. They found nude magazines in his apartment and gay pornography. They took fingerprints all over his apartment, which didn't lead to anything. They just knew this had to be a drug filled, gay, possibly mob connected murder. And I say mob connected because the mafia owned several gay bars, but they would sit outside of them and report anything they saw outside of the clubs, and they would get a kickback from the police department, which is so fucked up. Totally. The autopsy report came in Sal died healthy. Cause of death? massive hemorrhage, one stab wound, perforated heart, negative toxicology, no booze or barbiturates in his system. Sal's funeral was in New York at the Holy Trinity Catholic Church. 250 people attended. Fans were outside too. NYPD detectives were there to observe. They did not see any incidents or suspicious behavior. Time started to pass and there were no leads on who or why Salminio was slain Tucson PD got a burglary suspect in named John Angelo Rossi he had a hand-scrawled notebook a passage in it stated that he made it with Salminio and later offed him that's a quote not my wow. words wow they investigated further and it was a it was a dead end it proved he, the man was proved to be in Phoenix on the date of the murder, so they have nothing else to go on at this point. One year, two months, and 14 days after the investigation began, a young woman contacted a DA's informant, and the informant passed on the word. The woman knew Sal Mineo's killer. It was her boyfriend, Lionel Williams, who had been extradited to Michigan that day. He was charged with some bad check charges. She felt now that she could talk safely with detectives that he was away from LA. The thing is, Lionel did not match the description the eyewitnesses said of a white man with long hair. He was a black man with a large afro. After further investigation, it turns out the white man that they saw was actually someone running after him. And that was who the neighbors saw in the alley. Teresa Collins is terrified. She said Lionel is evil and abusive. At the time of the murder, Lionel's car had needed work. He had seen a knife at Western Surplus. He bought it, and he set out to make some money robbing some people. He wore all black threads and soft-soled shoes. Teresa stayed home and watched TV with his mom. Lionel came back late that evening. He flashed a large knife and stated he had just stabbed a dude. Teresa asked, what, what guy and where? He responded, a young looking white dude in Hollywood. Lionel said he hid out in a large apartment complex. He intended to rob somebody. A guy parked his car and saw him. He started yelling. Lionel panicked and stabbed him. The man started screaming, help me, please. Lionel freaked out and ran away. He ran right back to a borrowed car and sped out of there. Lionel then stashed the knife and changed his clothes when he arrived home. He started flipping through the channels of the news. Trying, He knew the stabbing would be on there. He wanted to know if the man died. They announced that actor Salminio was murdered. Lionel recognized him as the man that he had stabbed. Teresa jumped ahead in time about a year while talking to detectives. Unfortunately, abusive relationships are so hard to get out of and Teresa ended up marrying Lionel. She even had a child with him. Oh, man. One night, a friend of theirs, who's 15 to 16 years old, came over. Now, just keep in mind that Teresa and Lionel are around 17 to 19 years old. Lionel's 19, but she's about 17. Okay. And they were, they were all smoking marijuana together. He told the girl he had killed Sal Minio. She didn't believe him at first. Teresa confirmed it. Then Lionel went off to bed. Teresa and the girl hung out in the kitchen. An interval passed. Lionel resurfaced, showing her the murder knife and behaving manic. Lionel slammed the knife into the floor. He lit a candle and placed it upside the knife. He made the women sit beside him. The three joined hands. Lionel called out to Salminio. He said, Sal Minio says, everyone take off your clothes. The women shared a look, like, fuck no. Right. Lionel continued to talk to Sal, saying, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry I didn't know it was you. I didn't mean to do it. And then he explained, I needed the money, and kept saying, I'm sorry. Lionel then laid on the floor and fell asleep. The young woman who was there was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. So she started to leave. Lionel woke up. And asked Teresa where she was going. He told Teresa to get her back in and ask her if she wants to have an orgy. What? Teresa, yeah. Teresa got her and advised her absolutely don't have a fucking orgy with this fucking crazy guy.
1: (laughs) Sidebar. (laughs) Lionel.
0: Lionel went up. Lionel all of a sudden went into a rage. He grabbed Teresa by the throat. He said, "It's your fault. They're trying to take my car." Teresa broke free. Lionel pulled the knife from the floor. He put the blade up against the other girl's throat. He said, I'm going to put you out on the street and you're going to make me some money. Oh. Teresa Teresa left the room. She heard the girl screaming and pleading with Lionel. It went on for 10 minutes. Teresa returned to the room. The poor girl was stripped down to her bra and panties. Then, just like that, Lionel released her and left the house. Teresa told detectives... Teresa then told detectives news they did not want to hear. Teresa and Lionel's house had been burglarized, and the knife had been stolen. The detectives drove Teresa to Western Surplus, where Lionel had purchased the knife originally, and she picked out a perfect replica. They took the knife to Dr. Ronald Taylor at the L.A. morgue. Dr. Taylor retained a piece of the stab wound tissue of Sal Minio's upper chest, flash-frozen. He ran comparison wound tests on pig carcass tissue. Human tissue and pig tissue possess very similar characteristics. Pig tissue tests were courtroom valid also. The exemplar knife fit the murder knife dimensionally. It left a similar bruising and hilt patterns. The serrated edges were a perfect match. Teresa Collins passed a polygraph without any issues. Then police fly to Battle Creek, Michigan. Lionel Williams was ensconced in the Calhoun County Jail. Upsettingly, he gets released. They put out an APB that they need to talk to him urgently. Teresa tells them to talk to Mrs. Newsome in the meantime. She's an acquaintance of theirs. She told them that Lionel was often depressed. He said it made him go out and hurt people. He told her an awful story when he became depressed and he started crying. His world was coming to an end. He killed a man in Hollywood, but he didn't say who he killed. This was a good testimony to have in court because this woman was kind of an upstanding woman and took him in when he was down. She didn't have any criminal history. The central jail visiting rooms were hotwired. Lionel would trash talk. His jailhouse guests. Inmate and visitor phones were full time bugged, and pertinent trash talk were transcribed. Detectives ran down potential witnesses in Southside, LA. Teresa fed them names while Lionel was held in jail. They combed through the recordings without any hits. Weeks passed, months passed. The Minio case stood one year, five months in. Then they finally got a break. Deputy Ronald Peake overhears Lionel and an inmate, Philbert Gillard, talking. Lionel says he shivved Salminio. This is exactly what they needed. It was overheard by a police officer, which helped the case because it was a valid witness. The summer of 1977 passed, fall came, a tipster turned police on to Lionel's neighbor, Michael Alley, who allegedly drove Lionel that night, the night of the murder. They picked up Lionel's loner car at the dealership and got together later. They were drinking and cruising, looking for ladies. They didn't find any. They headed into Hollywood. Lionel drove. Michael fell asleep. He woke up and got sick. Lionel pulled to the curb and Michael got out and puked behind the car. He got back into the car. Lionel drove off and stopped somewhere near some apartments. He said he had to go see somebody about something. Then Lionel walked off. Then Michael saw him talking to someone. Michael keeps looking, and he sees Lionel stab the man. Because of Michael's history, that he was a criminal, this wasn't used as a credible witness. But regardless, Michael goes under hypnosis The doctor tries to dredge details and fails. 1977 faded into 1978. The Minio case was one year, 11 months old. They have a decently strong case, no matter what, especially with the officer who overheard Lionel's confess to the murder and Teresa's statement along with the girl he had threatened that night. And they have the match of the knife. The LADA's office moves forward with a warrant for Lionel Williams, charging him with murder. One, he is extradited back to LA. Teresa visited Lionel 13 times and failed to get the hoped for admission of guilt. Oh, geez. Unfor- unfortunately, they lost Teresa Collins. She evoked spousal privilege and refused to testify
1: kind of saw that coming
0: (laughs) the trial ran january 9th to february 13th 1979 judge bonnie lee martin presided the jury voted murder in the second degree guilty plus 10 robberies lionel got 51 years minimum he was paroled in 1990 after serving only 12 years Sal Mineo is buried at the Gate of Heaven Cemetery in Hawthorne, New York. A brilliant actor taken at the age of 37 years old, right as his career was rebounding. Many people say it was the curse of Rebel Without a Cause, since we lost all the stars, Sal, James Dean, and Natalie Wood. Many say that they see his ghost in the alley where he was murdered, or at the theater where he did P.S. Your Cat is Dead. The bottom line is, we refuse to forget him. My sources were The Hollywood Reporter, Wikipedia, Murderpedia, and History.com.
1: Wow. That was so tragic.
0: It's really sad, you know. It's funny because I was watching some old movies when I was on my trip, and I was thinking back. I really, really love old movies, and so I was thinking back of my I know. You and my and- mom had that in common. Yeah, I just wanted to revisit some some things that I had watched before, and I was like, "Oh man, I want to watch Rebel Without a Cause." And then I was like, "Oh, you know, I already had something else that I had planned on doing on the podcast," and then I ended up um, just kind of going really full on into the story of Salminio. Um, I'm sure one day I'll do Natalie Wood too, but that one for is now, so
1: interesting.
0: It is very interesting, but I think it's a really it would end up being like a full on like one hour episode. That's a really long one. We could
1: do it together.
0: Yeah, we could do it together. But I really wanted to do it because, like I said, he was an extremely talented actor. And it's just really sad what happened to him, you know, in the amount of discrimination that happened that these cops were like hell bent on Proving that this had something to do with his sexuality so they could show people, look, you live this lifestyle. This is what you get. You're going to be involved in drugs. And they were trying to be like, he, he has, he uses sex workers all the time. And they were really just trying to go for him so hard. And then it turned out to be just a robbery gone wrong.
1: Yeah.
0: It's heartbreaking. It's really sad, but I felt like it needed to be told. And. Not that many people have covered this one, so I think No, thought, I had
1: never even heard of it.
0: Yeah, so I thought it would be a good one to to do. And it was really interesting research.
1: I really uh, liked it.
0: A really major roller coaster ride. Yes. It was
1: ups and downs and twists and turns. Exactly.
0: Well, we're gonna take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, and then we'll be back to hear Autumn's case. So we'll talk to you soon. And we are back. That was such a good one.
1: I really liked it. I also, we have some things in common. Oh, boy. <laughs> Just you wait and see.
0: I'm excited. <laughs> good.
1: Okay, I'm going to get right on in.
0: Okay, let's do it.
1: This is the case of Laura Bible and Ashley Freeman. December 29th, 1999 was supposed to be a very special day for teenager Ashley Freeman. She was celebrating her 16th birthday with one of her best friends, Laura Bible. The girls had spent the evening at the local pizza hut with Ashley's mother, Kathy, before receiving permission from Laura's mother, Lorreen, to spend the night at Ashley's home. What was supposed to be a fun night for the friends turned into a parent's worst nightmare. No. I know. It's awful. Laura Jeline Bible was born on April 18th, 1983 in Oklahoma to parents Jay and Lorene Bible. She was the second child for Jay and Lorene and their only daughter. Laura grew up in a very small town and she was very much a small-town country girl. She showed pigs and lambs. Whoop, whoop. I know. She was very close with her family and loved spending time with them. Ashley Renee Freeman was born on December ninth, 1983. Everyone has described her as very outgoing and she loved to fish and hunt. So she was also very small town country, and they loved it that way. Laura and Ashley met in elementary school and had been close friends ever since. They grew up in a very small town, Welch, Oklahoma, which to this day has a population of about 600 people.
0: Oh, wow. That is small.
1: So even less in 1999.
0: Yeah. The
1: high school they attended had 12 students in their grade.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> that's that's pretty small pickings. I mean, yes.
1: The Freeman family had been having a hard year. Their 17-year-old son, Shane, had been shot and killed in January.
0: Oh, my God. Shane was a troubled teen
1: who burglarized local homes and had been on the run and living in a stolen truck when a Craig County deputy found him. They got into an altercation, and Shane pulled out his gun, and the deputy shot and killed him. His father, Danny, disputed the fact that his son pulled a gun, but there was an investigation and it was found to be accurate.
0: Hmm.
1: Ashley's boyfriend, Jeremy Hurst, joined the friends to celebrate her 16th birthday and he left around 9.30 p.m. that evening. Around 5.30 a.m. on December 30th, a couple on their way to work saw smoke billowing up from the Freeman's trailer and made a call to the fire department.
0: Mm, I don't like that.
1: I know. The fire department arrived at the home shortly after 5.30, and it was believed that the fire had been going on for a few hours at that point. They theorized that the fire had killed the family and Laura and did not believe that there would be any survivors. Laura's parents arrived at the scene, and the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations, which I will refer to as OSBI, would not let them pass the crime scene tape for over five hours.
0: Oh, gosh.
1: I mean, it's understandable, but as a parent, you can just...
0: Oh no! Just be There's... like distraught over it. At for that sure. point, there would be nothing that would that could hold you back. 100%. So
1: they were just in agony those five hours. The fire department is suspicious of the fire and it began to become clear that the fire was set deliberately. The remains of a woman were found lying on the floor of the master bedroom wearing a wedding ring and she had broad shoulders and was larger than the teenage girls. Weird. The medical examiner on scene knew the Bible family personally, so she unofficially told them that she believed the remains to be of Kathy Freeman and not of the teenagers. They continued to search the rubble for the remains of Danny and the two girls. However, they could not be found. The ME filed a report that evening of December 30th and it was a bombshell. It was confirmed the remains were Kathy Freeman's and she had been shot in the head execution style.
0: Oh fuck, I did right? not see that coming. Right? <laughs> Shocking.
1: The police started to theorize. The police started to theorize that Danny had killed his wife Kathy and abducted Ashley and Laura. Laura's car was still parked in the driveway with the keys in the ignition, indicating to them that the girls had not left the home on their own accord. Danny had a reputation with the locals for having anger issues, and some knew he was a drug dealer of marijuana and possibly methamphetamines. But Kathy and Danny had also been together since high school, so they were high school sweethearts. So what could have made him snap the night of his daughter's 16th birthday. Yeah. They were not sure. Even though the girls were missing and believed to be abducted by Danny, the OBSI released the crime scene from police custody on December 30th at 6 p.m. So they weren't investigating the fire any further at that point. The next morning, December 31st, The Bible family and a group of their friends gathered at the trailer with hand saws and shovels to shift through the rubble, looking for clues as to the girl's disappearance. The crime scene being released allowed them to roam the property freely. While searching, they discovered another body and alerted the police. The body had been trampled over the day before by crime scene investigators, The second body, a male, was found in the master bedroom with a gunshot wound to the head, just like Kathy Freeman. Shit. Right? The man was identified immediately. Danny had had reconstructive surgery on his face years before, and you could see the wires from the reconstruction surgery.
0: Oh, God.
1: I know. This was very concerning to Laura's parents. As the body had clearly been there the day before, you could see the boot marks down his torso where he'd been walked on during the search.
0: Oh, my God. He had
1: been there the entire time. Jesus. Once the remains of Danny were found, the police tried to take control back of the crime scene, but they were now theorizing that the girls were hiding out and not that whoever had shot Danny and Kathy Freeman had taken the teenagers. The Bible family refused to leave the crime scene, and at this time, locals began to arrive to search the property and the surrounding area for any trace of what might have happened to Ashley and Laura, and hopefully bring them home safely. Sifting through the ashes, Jay and Lorene Bible found no additional bodies. However, they did find the personal items of Laura and Ashley, such as their purses, cash, and ID's. This was enough for them to believe that the girls did not go in hiding or leave on their own accord. Yeah. The OBSI failed to post the missing girls on their national database for missing juveniles. Lorreen started her own campaign to find her daughter, Ann Ashley, at this point, making missing posters and speaking to the media.
0: Well, good for her.
1: 100%. The brother of Danny Freeman, Dwayne Vansell, called in a private investigator – tom Pryor to see if he could search the property for any clues as to what might have happened this is a small town and the rift between danny and the authorities over the death of his son and additionally being a a presumed drug dealer could be causing some friction between the families feeling the authorities were taking the girls disappearance seriously yeah Basically, the family didn't trust law enforcement at this point and wanted an outside source helping them and locating the missing girls. Tom Pryor and his business partner, Joe Dugan, agreed to take the case on for only one dollar.
0: Good for them. Mm -hmm.
1: Tom was a father himself and had two girls and two boys. One of his daughters was the same age as the teenagers, and he said he called to his heart to take this on. The pair search the property, and when Joe was searching the long driveway of the rural home, he comes across a piece of paper. When he picks up the piece of paper and examines it, it's proof of insurance card for a blue, mid-sized Mercury Topaz registered to a woman who lives 15 minutes from the Freeman's property in Chautauqua, Kansas. The private investigators report their findings to the OSBI and told them that they had found something they believed to be important evidence and would like to turn it into the police. And law enforcement told them it wasn't necessary.
0: You're kidding me. I thought that was coming. Mm-hmm. Law
1: enforcement does not seem to think that this piece of evidence matters. But that is not how Tom and Joe felt. Yeah. And they, and they pressed on with their investigation, which included heading to the woman's home that the insurance card belonged to.
0: Obviously. Right. I mean, this is ridiculous. I agree. The
1: woman was very confused and had no explanation as to why her insurance card would be anywhere near the Freeman's property. However, she does give the men the name of her boyfriend, Philip Welch. She told them that her car was in his possession the night of the fire and he might be able to provide more information on how or why the insurance card ended up on their property. The private investigators tracked down Philip Welch at a hamburger joint they were told he frequented, which to me is so small town. Think of like, you know where this guy is at a hamburger joint, you know? I can
0: can picture it in my mind. (laughs) Yes.
1: They took a seat next to him at the counter making small talk. Coincidentally, a broadcast comes over the radio about the missing girls, and Tom uses this as his chance to bring them up. He asks Phil... Where were you the night that the girls went missing? Phil tells him that he was out partying in Chautauqua, and he doesn't know anything about the case. The men leave the burger joint, but they feel they are not finished with Phil yet.
0: No way. I know,
1: right? The private investigators are still convinced that this insurance card that they have really is a key piece of evidence and go back to the owner of the car. They ask her if they are able to search the car if she would allow them to just have a look over it. She let them know that she actually recently sold the car to a salvage yard and that she no no longer owned the vehicle. Oh, no. Like, what are the odds? I mean, this is, like, so quick to me. To sell it to a salvage yard all of a sudden? Okay, suspicious, but here we are.
0: Very suspicious.
1: The investigators tracked down the salvage yard, and the owner allows them to do a search of the vehicle.
0: Yay.
1: The, I know, right? In the car, they find some disturbing items girls' clothing and a roll of duct tape.
0: Hmm, they not also, surprised at all. <laughs> I know,
1: right? They also found a bunch of rent receipts made out to Phil Welch, the boyfriend of the woman who owned the vehicle. Once they discovered these items, they called the lead investigator of the OSBI once more, Steve Nutter, and asked if he would like to come and process the car. Steve declined. You're kidding me. He said too many hands had touched it. There would be no evidence in there that they could use. So what would be the point?
0: But they have the girls' clothes and things like that. That's... I know it's circumstantial, but it's still there, you know? It's still there. It adds to a case. Yes.
1: It is at this time they receive some pressure to back off the ongoing investigation. What? They reluctantly do after Steve Nether threatened to pull Tom Pryor's license for interfering with his case. Whoa, okay. Months turn into years, and there are no new leads, and there has been no movement on the case. The case goes cold, despite the hard work of the Bible family and the small community. Five years after the fire, a serial killer was arrested by the name of Jeremy Bryan Jones, Jeremy was from the area of Miami, Oklahoma, which is about 15 miles from Welch, Oklahoma. He was a well-known, dangerous criminal who had committed numerous murders, rapes, and arsons throughout the Midwest. He had been evading capture up until he was arrested in 2004 in Alabama for the murder of his neighbor, Lisa Nichols. When police bring him in for questioning, he confesses to her murder in addition to 13 other crimes. Damn. This shockingly included the murders of Ashley Freeman and Laura Bible. Jeremy, in his confession, stated that he murdered Danny and Kathy Freeman as a favor for a friend over a drug debt. Then he took the girls to Kansas, where he shot them and threw them into an abandoned mine. Authorities do searches of the mine that Jeremy indicated he disposed of their bodies in and are unable to find any evidence of the teenagers. It's, mm. at, it's at this point that Jeremy recants his confession and admitted that he fabricated the story in order to get better food and additional phone privileges in prison. Okay. Asshole.
0: Looking 100%. For, right?
1: Looking further into him, it's absolutely not possible for him to have committed the murders. He was actually arrested the morning of the fire at 4 a.m., more than 18 miles away.
0: Yeah, that seemed a little too convenient. Mm -hmm.
1: This is heartbreaking and frustrating to the families of Ashley and Laura. And unfortunately, the case goes ice cold once again after this huge letdown. In December of 2017, Whoa! mm -hmm, New investigators looked through notes from the original investigation and started to follow leads based on these notes. Despite Steve Nutter telling Tom Pryor and Joe Dugan that Phil Welch was not a person of interest, the OSBI had indeed named him as a person of interest. The new investigators go to interview his ex girlfriend and she tells them that he had posters of the missing teenagers up in their home and they discovered that Danny and Phil most likely knew each other
0: because Oh my god. Because Phil actually
1: was a meth cooker. And Danny was suspected dealer of meth. Yeah. The ex-girlfriend was very afraid to speak as she said they had threatened her life and she would end up just like the girls. She said that Phil and his friend David Pennington and Ronnie Dean Busick had taken Polaroids of the girls that he kept in a soft leather briefcase. She stated that she had even taken the photos from him at one point. And that he threatened her, that he would put her in a pit with the missing girls and kill her if she did not return them to him.
0: My God.
1: After they had gathered enough information, it is clear that they need to speak to Phil Welch. However, when they go looking for him, it was discovered that he had died in 2007 of ALS and the gut punches keep coming.
0: No. The
1: other person of interest, David Pennington, they find out, was also deceased. He had passed in 2015. This left only Ronnie Busick. In April of 2018, Ronnie Dean Busick, at the age of 66, was arrested and charged with four counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Laura Bible, Ashley Freeman, Kathy Freeman, and Danny Freeman. Yuzick pled guilty July fifteenth, 2020, to being an accessory to first-degree murder, torching the home of the Freemans and the abduction and presumed slayings of the two girls. He also admitted to having withheld information about the involvement of Phil Welch and David Pennington. He was sentenced to 15 years. Fifteen! Years for the crime, with 10 years to be spent in lockup. In a public address, the Bible family issued a statement in which they stated that they had been aware of the alleged photographs for years, and that at this time, all focus is on finding Laura and Ashley. We welcome all information leading to their recovery. Until they are home with us, this will never be over. After his arrest, Busick told reporters he wished to speak to the Bibles. On April 26, 2018, Bible's mother, Lorene, confirmed she spoke with Busick, but that he denied knowing the whereabouts of her daughter, or Freeman. The super tragic part of this is that the girls were kept in a trailer for two weeks after the fire.
0: Oh my gosh. And the insurance
1: card had led them to the person that was holding them, and they could have been recovered alive. Isn't that
0: really tragic?
1: It's absolutely devastating that the police. Devastating
0: and frustrating.
1: Yes. They could have been recovered alive. And now they don't even know where their remains are. So, what they suspect happened is that they came in there on relations of Danny doing drugs and owing money, and they killed them, and the girls ran out the back into a field to hide. And when the girls stood up, they found them. And that's when they abducted them. But they were innocent bystanders in this situation. And also, like, your kid's out having a summer party for her friend's 16th birthday and she never comes home. Yeah, How that's awful. Freaking
0: tragic. Terrible.
1: My sources were Wikipedia, Unsolved Mysteries, America's Most Wanted, People Magazine, News.com with an article by Candace Sutton. Isn't that just awful? Like, I couldn't... I, they still don't know where their remains are.
0: That's awful. That's so sad. You know, and it's, it's tough because the other guys died, and so they absolutely have no hope, really, of finding them.
1: It's just so crazy to me.
0: And the amount of people, though, that came through the scene and everything, it's so shocking to me. That they were so reluctant to, like, look at other pieces of evidence that anyone else found. It's almost like it was just, like, swinging their dicks a bit.
1: Yes. And they were just upset because Danny had a beef with the people for his son being killed. I mean, it's unfortunate, like, and I don't want to talk ill of them, but, like, I mean... Danny was on the wrong side of the law. His son was on the wrong side of the law. And these sure. children got stuck in the middle, you
0: know? Yeah. That's just really sad. It's
1: really sad. But it took forever to get any kind of answers. And I mean, for real. That's like in a small town, you know, the her parents, Laura's parents were like so patient. They're just very calm and like collected and, you know, very small town. I don't like – want to say anything negative but like they're like yeah we knew about those photos for years like these rumors for years and they're just were patiently waiting for somebody to like do something about
0: it yeah I think it's kind of like sometimes you see people it's like sometimes you see people that have like a blind trust in or faith in like the justice system or things like that and it's it's like a lot of times It takes so much and so many things from outside sources to actually get down to the bottom of it. Mm
1: -hmm. It's just so sad. I just can't get over the fact that they were alive for up to two weeks in that trailer. And that the private investigators were like, hey, look, we think this is something.
0: Yeah. And they could have saved them. They could have
1: saved them. I mean, the guy threatened to pull the guy's license, his livelihood. He had to back off.
0: Sure. But it was so close. It's really so frustrating. frustrating. It makes we me did so have sad. a lot of things in common. Mm-hmm. We had the robberies from the son, and and then we also had the fact that the girl was uh, the woman was afraid. The girlfriend was afraid to talk to the police. You know that's in common, and um, just and the, and then it went cold for so for a while. Yours much longer than mine, but still. But still, ended it's up like yeah, cold. I just, my heart. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully somehow someone will find them. Mm-hmm. You know, find their bodies. Whether it's like construction or who knows. You know, it happens all the time,
1: right? And so, there's as in 2020, like the stepdaughter of one of the deceased, David Pennington. She was like, oh yeah, I think they were in a cellar and they got like put concrete over them. And they searched that cellar and they didn't find them. So, I mean, there's obviously, like, still stories going around and whatnot, but...
0: Yeah, I'm sure. Like, a small town especially, everybody talks, and then it starts to become, like, telephone, and then it morphs into something else.
1: Yes, 100%.
0: But hopefully, hopefully they will find them. Yes. Yeah. Well... I was really glad that we are back. Me too. And that we both covered really sad <laughs> cases. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. We're back with some downers. I mean, it's murder, but still. But still. <laughs> um, But both were interesting, so that's, th- that's good. Uh, we'll be back next week with new episodes. Also, if you haven't used our promo code for Birdie, She's Birdie is a personal alarm and... Um, it allows you to get to stay far away from people and you just pull a pull the tab and you will have 130 decibels going off with a flashing light. It's nonviolent, so that's why we promote it. Our promo code is NOTMurder15 and you get 15% off. So please go and check that out and stay safe. Outside of that, you can always email us ideas or DM us on Instagram, and then we will be posting pictures. And uh, information about both of our cases on the gram, so check that out. I think that's all the things, right? I think that's.
1: It's weird getting back in the swing of things. Being gone I know, so long. right? I'm like, <laughs>
0: is that everything? I think that's all the things. I think it is. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Again, if you want to email us, it's info at murdernotmurdering.com. Uh, and we will see you next week. Bye. Woop woop. Bye,
1: everyone. Woop woop. <laughs> <laughs>